everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansberry, and today we're going to be talking all about homelessness. Specifically, what we can do to actually solve homelessness and help get more people in our community into housing. I'm sure that most of you listening are well aware of the latest with Austin's homelessness policies, but just in case, I'll give you a quick recap. On May 1st, Austin voters approved Prop B by a 15-point margin, essentially reinstating our city's homelessness camping ban that had been in place before city council voted to overturn it in the summer of 2019. Since then, the big question on everyone's lips has been, what now? If Austinites experiencing homelessness can no longer sleep on our city's streets, and if the shelters don't have enough capacity to take everyone in, which they don't, especially since many of them are still operating at limited COVID-19 occupancy levels, then where is everyone supposed to go? That's exactly the question we're going to try and answer on today's show. Later in the episode, we're going to hear from two different people who are actually doing the work and putting plans together right now to house people as quickly as possible. But before we do that, a quick update on Prop B enforcement, in case you haven't yet heard. Earlier this month, APD and the city manager announced a plan for enforcing the homeless camping ban that would be rolled out in four month-long phases. The first phase, which is happening right now, is only supposed to include community engagement and education. Quote, except in the case of imminent threats to health or safety, unquote. In phase two, APD will begin to issue written warnings and initial citations. In phase three, 72-hour notices will be placed at encampments in advance of cleanups. If people are still camping there 72 hours later, citations will be issued. And in phase four, quote, citations and arrests will continue as necessary, unquote. The problem here is the education and community engagement that's supposed to be happening is meant to direct people to other places they can go before the camps are cleaned out. But we already know that there isn't enough space for everyone else to actually go somewhere. And that's where the idea of designated campsites comes into play. These are pieces of city-owned or nonprofit-owned land where people could legally be allowed to camp and where bathrooms, showers, and some storage might even be provided. It's a concept that city council and staff have rejected in the past, saying that designated campsites can become costly because they divert money from actual housing programs, they can become permanent, and they can be difficult to open because of neighborhood opposition. But given the reality of Prop B passing, city council directed the city manager to put together a list of potential designated campsites throughout the city. And city staff returned with a list of about 40 possible campsites located on parkland, at recreation centers, and some underutilized city-owned plots of land. In a memo to city council, Austin's homeless strategy officer, Diana Gray, estimated that the sites with 50 people would cost about $1.3 million a year to operate, while sites with 100 people would cost $1.87 million a year. Now, the idea here is that there would be one campsite in each of Austin's 10 city council districts, but there's already been some concern over that. Of the 40-ish proposed sites, an especially large number of them are located in East Austin, and many council members have already begun publicly crossing off proposed locations in their districts. Now, add on to that the fact that both houses of the Texas legislature recently passed a statewide homeless camping ban, which includes a clause that prevents public parkland from being used for designated campsites and requires local governments to seek state approval before creating these kinds of sites. 
So at the time of recording this, that bill is not technically yet law. It still has to be signed by the governor, but it could have a big impact on the city's designated campsite policy, but we just don't know yet. So kind of keeping an eye out for that one. And there actually already is one designated campsite operating in Austin right now. It's called Camp Esperanza, and it was started by the governor back in 2019. It's managed by the Other Ones Foundation, which is a local nonprofit. And the Other Ones Foundation has actually been raising money recently to build micro homes at the site, allowing people to move out of tents, enjoy some privacy, and have access to heating and air conditioning. But there certainly isn't enough space at the site to accommodate the need in our community, which is pretty large. And if the city decides to embrace the designated campsite idea, it seems like more than just this one is going to be needed. Um, P.S. One last thing about this. If you want to learn more about the Other Ones Foundation, stay tuned to the Austin Commons Instagram account, um, the underscore Austin underscore common, because we're hopefully going to be featuring an interview with them next week. So something to keep an eye out for. Okay, so anyway, what's happening in the that's what's happening in the short term. But what about longer term? What's our overall strategy for actually solving the problem of homelessness and getting more people housed in our community? Enter the summit plan. This plan was developed throughout the spring by a coalition of a whole bunch of different organizations, including the City of Austin, Austin Justice Coalition, Ending Community Homelessness Coalition or ECHO. Downtown Austin Alliance, the Austin Chamber of Commerce, and many, many more. I'm going to let our first guest, Bill Bryce, who is the VP of Investor Relations at the Downtown Austin Alliance, tell you all about the plan. But just to give you the headline, it's basically a plan to house 3,000 people in three years, in addition to the rehousing efforts that already are taking place across the city. Now the cost, um, it's estimated about $515 million, although $222 million in funding has already been set aside, leaving us with about a $300 million funding gap. Okay, here's Bill. The genesis of the Homeless Summit really came from a series of facilitated meetings that the Downtown Austin Alliance had late last fall with ECHO, with the Chamber of Commerce, with the mayor, and with new leadership from downtown. And that led to us forming the summit, which took place through mid-March into April. And the purpose of the summit was really to bring together uh, a lot of the same players that have been part of this uh, initiative or efforts over time. So ECHO and a lot of the social service providers that are working on this issue year in and year out, housing providers, but now, more also in the way of the public, or pardon me, the private sector, private corporation funding support, uh, private philanthropy, and others that are interested in solving this problem. We recognize and have for a long time that we can't rely on the city or government alone to solve this issue. It's way bigger than that. We recognize that ECHO and the social service agencies can't solve this alone and that the private sector really needs to play a bigger role. The question has always been, what is the plan that shows how that happens, how the private sector or the community at large plugs into the system? And so that's what led to us hosting the summit, which more than 200 different organizations participated in over a several week period. And we came out of the summit with several goals, a long range goal to house 3000 people experiencing homelessness in Austin in three years, to reach equilibrium where the number of people entering the condition of homelessness equals the number of people exiting that condition in any given year within five years. And then some short-term goals to try and demonstrate that we can effectively get people off the streets. So come end of June, 
We expect to get 100 people off the streets. And also by the end of August, another 100. By the end of the year, another 200 and keep this moving forward. But we've really got to ramp up the system as a whole. And I think by and large, we've recognized that our community has been focused on more, more on one part of the system, the back end, trying to provide permanent housing resources, which has really led to the failure of the system working uh, effectively as a whole. And now we've got a lot of people who have become chronically homeless as a result of that. They're homeless for a period of a year or more with a debilitating factor or more than one debilitating condition uh, that really complicates uh, and makes it a lot more difficult to get them housed. And so we keep trying to increase housing. We're doing that. Actually, last year, 1,879 people experiencing homelessness were housed in Austin. We don't often hear about that good news happening in yeah, our community. And that's so- a, That's a good point. Can I can I pause with you on that really quick? I, I, I don't want to cut you off, but I, I want to make sure we highlight that because I think that for, again, for the average Austinite, it definitely can feel like we are not doing anything at all. You know, you can see the problem and- um, can you, obviously you're not, you know, working for the city, but can you provide some perspective there of how those, how are those people being housed? Did we build new housing resources? Do we have new services for them? Like, how did we make that happen this year? Thank you. Well, for, for many years, there have been efforts underway to try and increase permanent housing resources that can be done in a couple of ways. One is opening up existing apartment units, basically working with landlords, to provide rent subsidies and subsidies for services. But basically a person who's formerly homeless is placed in those housing units with guarantees that the rent will be paid. And the person is bound to a lease, just like any other renter would be. Uh, They are not forced to to be be availing themselves of services, to engage in services. Uh, But we know the statistics show that once a person's housed and stable, more stable than when they're living unsheltered on the street, then they're, if they have substance use uh, problems, the usage rates reduce. If they have frequent visits to emergency rooms or emergency psychiatric centers, we know those rates drop because they're, they're more stable than they are on the street. And they're also more likely to engage in services because one, they have a place to store all of their belongings. They're safe and sheltered. So the opportunities they then have to go to a job interview, to an appointment for services or treatment, uh, or to get the help that they need really increase. And so that's the theory behind permanent supportive housing and housing first, no barrier to entry, get someone under a roof and stabilize first, and then try to provide the robust services that help them sort through whatever it is that they need to stay housed and not return to homelessness. And so, um, so using existing rental units, working with landlords is one way to do that. The other way- and- And in doing that real quick, when you say kind of backing it up, the idea would be having some funding so that that landlord feels like if that person is unable to pay, they're still going to get their rent check every month. And that might make them more willing to rent to this individual. Is that the idea? Thank you. That's exactly correct. So so there's rent subsidy involved where the, the individual who's been housed provides generally up to one third of their income. Now, often these the folks that are being housed are not employed. Some are. Um, but many have other sources of income, whether that's social security or veterans benefits or disability benefits. And so whatever their sources of income are, generally about a third of that goes toward rent. The balance of the rent is subsidized by housing vouchers and other supports. 
and then the services that they need are also provided. Um, so, so convincing landlords who have existing units to rent to people who were formerly homeless is one way to get people housed. The other way is to develop new units. That takes a lot longer and it's actually very expensive. We know, for example, when the Terrace at Oak Springs, the integral care project at 3000 Oak Springs Road was built, that was a development that took about five years to build. Downtown Austin Alliance was one of the capital campaign contributors of many uh, to that 15, $17 million effort that was for 50 units. And it took about five years to get there. So we know it takes a long time, especially in Austin where you have um, so much construction going on. It takes a long time to build just about anything longer than it might in other communities. But on the rental side, when you have a rental market that has until the past year at least been over 95% occupied, uh, it's really hard to, to, to find units available for people that we have experiencing homelessness and would like to get placed in those units. And so it takes a long time to get there. And that's why we recognize that more support is needed on the front end of the system. We have kind of a log jam, right, where it takes too long to get people permanently housed. So in the meantime, what are we doing to provide a place that they can be on the front end of the system with services they need? The fact is, too, that a lot of people who experience homelessness don't always need permanent housing or subsidized housing. Mm -hmm. Some might for a short period of time. Some might not need that at all. And in fact, if we're able to provide safe places for people to be when they first become homeless, and keep them safe and stable and provide the resources they need, oftentimes they can rebound and resolve their condition of homelessness without those very expensive resources that are in high demand and very short supply. Okay. And so how do we work on that front end? What does that involve? Is that what rapid rehousing is? I see that that word reused a lot, used a lot, or is it a different kind of service provided or is it just shelter beds? What kind of... Yeah, thank you. So the front end of the system really involves prevention, diversion, shelter, um, quick resources to quickly help people exit the condition of homelessness as they first entered that condition, at least as quickly as possible. Rapid rehousing that you mentioned is another modality that is 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 longer term, but but generally six months to a year, not more than two years. So again, if a person has recently become homeless and they need that type of support, that's a shorter term, sort of lighter touch, if you will, than permanent supportive housing. Housing first would be, which permanent supportive housing really should only be used for people who are chronically homeless, have debilitating conditions and need that very expensive, subsidized, long-term, oftentimes permanent for life support. So rapid rehousing does sort of fill almost a middle point there where it's not shelter, it's, it's you know, actually housing, you're you know, in your own unit, you have resources that you need, perhaps some rent subsidy for a shorter period of time, but also services that a person or a family might need uh, to rebound out of a condition of homelessness faster than the long-term subsidized permanent housing resources. Got it. Okay. So those are some of the different ways that we're working on that current, you know, currently that's that's our model. And then this plan, when we talk about trying to get to 3000, um, what kind of 
escalation is that for us? You know, like how ambitious is this plan, I guess, compared to what we're currently doing? And then where, where do we see the biggest need then? Is it just like a ton of investment on that front end? Is it building housing? Like, where do we see these pieces coming together? Right. So, so as I had mentioned earlier, last year, for example, within Austin, 1,879 people who were experiencing homelessness were housed. If we're shooting for 3,000 in three years, we've got to exceed that by about another 1,000 units a year. So if you imagine rather than 2,000, or pardon me, almost 2,000 people being housed, 1,879 last year, we've got to add another 1,000 to that next year and another 1,000 to that the year after. So that means really working hard on the back end of the system to provide that permanent housing resource, whether that's an existing unit or newly created unit, but also working on the front end of the system to ensure that people aren't languishing on the streets, that there is a better and more reasonable alternative than to living unsheltered, being under the bridges, being in the parks, on the sidewalks downtown, or anywhere in our community where we see and know that we have thousands of people, as demonstrated by recent information that ECHO had released, thousands of people on any given day who are living unsheltered here in our community. We've got to do better than that. Now the fact that Proposition B passed um, May 1st, uh, ordinances went back into effect May 11th, the potential that there is uh, state legislation that might impact, uh, the fact that people cannot camp any longer on the streets, all of these things, to me, the first most important question we have got to be able to answer is, if I can't be here, where can I legally be? And mm -hmm. we're in a position right now where that is, I think, the most pressing issue. So rather than trying to focus on one aspect of it and say, we're going to focus only on permanent housing. And by the way, while all of you are out there, until we can find a permanent unit, you got nothing better. To me, that is very unjust and that's unreasonable, especially now that we have laws back in effect that, that frankly prohibit that. So we've got to do better than that. While, while designated or sanctioned areas for people to camp are not at all ideal and certainly aren't the answer to homelessness, we've got to have that as part of a set of solutions. So as a first step, if there is not a unit, a way to move a person, divert a person from homelessness quickly, then we've got to provide a place that they can reasonably be. And, you know, an example of that is happening out at Camp Esperanza, the mm -hmm. state site that the governor uh, dedicated for people experiencing homelessness to be able to go uh, more than a year and a half ago, fall of 2019. And while there are many people out there who are living in tents and other structures uh, that they've cobbled together with any number of different materials, um, now what's happening, we're seeing an evolution out there where these micro shelter units are being put in place where individuals or couples are now re residing in micro units with electricity, AC, heat, they have access to showers, restrooms, a place where they can cook and eat, coordinated food service, case management, and other services that are helpful to moving them out of the condition of homelessness. Believe me, Camp Esperanza is not and was never intended to be the solution, but it's an important part of the solution where people have a place to go, they can legally be there, access essential services that are helpful, hopefully, to accelerating their pathway out of homelessness. Yeah, you know, I, I want to clarify something you mentioned, because I think maybe I didn't understand this. When you say that 3000 people a year number that or three, that's literally each year, that's not 3000 total by three years from now, that's like every year we are able to rehouse 3000 people or 
Am I not hearing that right? So the goal coming out of the summit was to rehouse 3,000 people in three years, but we're already this past year at 1879. So that means we've got to hit more than, you know, about 2,879 next year and the year after that and the year after that. We, we don't want to diminish what we're working on already. We want to add more Add 3,000 additional. Right. So we know from recent data that on any given night, we probably have 2,000 or more people experiencing unsheltered homelessness in Austin. That number could be higher. This past January, we did not do a point in time count. ECHO has come out with some other estimates based on other methodology that's different from the annual point in time count, which they think is more accurate. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say what the exact number is, but we know that that also understates the totality of the problem. When we talk about the point in time count numbers, that's one point of uh, one night in a given year of how many people were able to be counted in shelter and unsheltered. The fact is, is that the, the total number of unique individuals experiencing homelessness in Austin in any given year is a lot closer to nine or 10,000. We recognize from data from central health and other sources over time. And so that's the reality of the problem. Now, Obviously, a lot of what we're doing is working because if you think about 10,000 people a year, but on any given night, we're somewhere in that two to 3,000 range. You know, that's saying that a lot of people are getting through the system. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of how do we make our system more effective, more efficient to one, ensure people are entering the system, but also moving through the system quicker and coming out with real solutions that prevent them from returning to being homeless again. Got it. So we're hoping to really be at a place where we're able to provide almost about double the amount of services that we currently are each year in order to really actually gain some ground, I guess, on this problem. Because I assume it's also with housing the way it is in Austin, I assume it's 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 just getting worse and worse or we're as our city grows and there's just more people who live here, we can't expect to just keep doing things the same way and actually see like a numbers drop. Well, that, that's correct. And, and, and this is in part a factor of Austin's success over the last few decades with a significantly increasing population that just continues to go the way that it's been for the past decade. Um, it, we're, we're a lot like many other cities, a lot of West Coast cities and others, where increasing populations increase the demand for housing. There's a very short supply of housing here in Austin. We know that. So that, that continues to escalate the price of housing, the cost of housing, and push people to the margins. And people who are uh, low-wage earners, people of color are particularly disproportionately affected by this issue. Uh, people who are uninsured, underinsured, uh, have less family wealth uh, to bolster themselves in, in the event of an emergency and, uh, and perhaps a an illness or having to care for a family member who has fallen ill. All these things really uh, affect people of color disproportionately to others. And so we know that while Austin continues on this trajectory where we're attracting many, many people, new corporations coming here, um, the, the, the sort of the unfortunate byproduct of that is the fact that the increasing housing costs have a negative effect when it comes to people who are living on the margins and those who may lose their jobs. And frankly, to that point, you know, I'm not sure that yet we've seen the full effects of what the mm. pandemic may do in terms of uh, its impact on the issue of homelessness. Um, many of us feel and fear, frankly, uh, that people have lost jobs, 
that with eviction moratoriums still being in effect, once those are lifted, once we recognize, you know, months down the road, perhaps a year from now, people whose, uh, you know, breadwinners in the family has perhaps died or lost their jobs, you know, we could potentially see a wave of people becoming homelessness, homeless that we didn't necessarily anticipate. And if, if we don't have a system that can fluctuate and adjust uh, to accommodate whatever the needs are at the time and wherever the needs are across that system, um, we're going to be caught behind on this. And so our system needs to be able to quickly um, ramp up to adjust if there are more people all of a sudden becoming homeless mm. front end. How do we divert? How do we prevent? How do we quickly get people out of the system while we're also working through the system, as I have mentioned earlier on this call, to, to increase permanent housing resources? Right. And so when we talk about funding for all of this, you mentioned before that it's going to be a really citywide effort and and come from a bunch of different sources. But what are some of our estimates on what it might cost and some early? I know the summit plan is still fairly new, but some ideas about how we can bring this funding together. Right. So one thing that I think is really important from a funding perspective is we have an opportunity right now like we've never had before. And it's because of the amount of funding that's come into the community over the past year during the pandemic and funding coming into the community through the American Rescue Plan Act. So, so you know, between city funding, potential county funding uh, coming through the American Rescue Plan, we have an opportunity to address homelessness with an, an, an influx of funds like we have never had before. It's going to take a lot of that funding to really help get us a little bit ahead of the curve or closer to being ahead of the curve, frankly. But we also know that to sustain that type of momentum, we've got to have more private sector involvement. What we know the private sector needs in order to provide that support is an actionable plan, a plan that, that probably looks more like a business plan than we've had before to say, here's how the system works. Your investment is secure because we are organized. We are orchestrating this effectively in a very intelligent way based on data, providing metrics, being able to track our progress. And while we have had and used some level of data in the past, it's probably not as efficient and as sufficient as it has needed to be in order to really pull in the private sector and private philanthropy investments that are going to be needed, uh, not only to get to that 3,000 level, but hopefully to get to that 5,000 uh, or more to reach equilibrium in the coming years and beyond. Yeah. And I know this is a little bit more of a city project, but I wonder if you um, can just share a little bit of information for folks they might have been seeing in the headlines a lot recently. It seems like we've done started doing this hotel um, rental and buy-up strategy, and it seems like there's been a lot of action around that. It feels like almost every city council meeting, there's some vote on on that, um, can you talk a little bit just like what what that program is and and how that's starting to move forward? Because that's from funding from the federal government as well, is my understanding, or a lot of money from the federal government. The city of Austin and Echo several years ago really started down the path looking at different hotels and motels that could be considered for purchase and then conversion uh, to either temporary housing or permanent housing. And we were on that pathway before the pandemic hit. And what was really interesting to me is once the pandemic struck and so many different hotel properties were left vacant for so long, other cities started to employ that same strategy uh, that we already had a bit of a leg up on. And so um, I think it's really 
interesting that Austin was a little bit ahead of, of the curve there and already on this path. Obviously, over the course of the past year, and it's starting to turn now, but a lot of hotels were vacant for many, many months. And a lot of older hotel properties exist in Austin, particularly along our primary uh, highway corridors that uh, could potentially be used uh, for long-term temporary housing or converted to permanent housing. Again, with such a tight housing market here, opportunities like those, like what that presents uh, to quickly purchase and convert properties for, for permanent housing or long-term temporary housing use is critically important and really helps us to build inventory in the system faster than we might by any other strategy. Obviously, we've got to be sensitive to the community as a whole. What, what has to happen and must be demonstrated as these begin to come online is that one, they can be operated and managed in ways that no one realizes who's living there. In fact, once people are there, they're no longer homeless. People say, I don't want the homeless in my community. I don't want them here. Well, once they're there, they are housed people. They're people living in homes. And so I think that's one important thing, but we've got to ensure that none, nothing like that or even sanctioned encampment areas um, are unsafe or create unsafe conditions or unhealthy conditions in and of themselves or in the areas surrounding them. And I think that as a community as a whole, neighborhoods and different parts of the community have to realize people experiencing homelessness are everywhere spread across our community. We know we've got a large concentration of people experiencing homelessness in downtown Austin. But the point here is it is better and safer for the people experiencing homelessness today to be in places that are intended for them to be, whether that's a sanctioned encampment, provided that it's well-managed, that it's well-maintained and safe, not only in the encampment, but the entire surrounding area, whether that's a long-term temporary or permanent housing project, these are all essential. And as a community, if we don't like the fact that we've got people living under the bridge or in the creek beds or in the woods, then we've got to be able to say yes to having these types of programs and projects in our communities because they've got to be somewhere. And by saying, no, I don't want them out there, but by God, don't put anything here is, is asking to have both ways. And as, and as a community, that's unrealistic. We cannot have it both ways. It's critically important that as a community, we start saying yes to these types of projects but we have to insist that they are well-managed, they don't bring down the neighborhood, that they are healthy, that they are safe, and that they make the environment and community healthy and safer for everyone, especially those experiencing homelessness and for those that already live across our community. Right, and so these are hotels that, like you mentioned, some of them are older, they were vacant, and I believe some funding became available to use them as like these protection lodges or places where um, if you know you needed to social distance from people in your household or have a different alternative um, around COVID, they be and and now that COVID is starting to wind down, thankfully, there's the opportunity to convert them into more permanent solutions to homelessness. I know some homeless individuals were already being housed, I think, in some capacity in some of these, but now we can think about it as a longer-term strategy. Yes, that's right. I mean, the okay. city the city had leased five different hotel properties during the pandemic. Uh, up to now, they have purchased four hotel properties totaling 299 rooms. Uh, some of those will be converted to permanent housing. Some will be bridge housing. Uh, all of this plays an important role, has an important place along that system spectrum, depending upon a person's needs or what's available in terms of their needs. And uh, we need all of the resources 
that we can muster together in order to solve this problem. So that's Bill Bryce. Next up, we're going to hear from Joe Paulo Connolly, Director of Organizing at the Austin Justice Coalition. Today, we are talking about housing and homelessness with the Austin Justice Coalition. And um, I know this is an issue you all have been working on and very active in um, for quite a while now. Um, trying to think about the best place to start. I mean, I, I think for so many people, we've been we've been seeing how homelessness has affected our community. We had this really big contentious election. And now I feel like so many folks are like, what are we even doing <laughs> or, or what can we do to fix this problem? Because it can feel like we don't have I don't know what the solutions are, you know, mm-hmm. I guess coming from that place, what are some of the things that that your organization is working on to actually help people and, and, and make some progress on this big, this big issue? Well, um, first of all, thank you for inviting us to be part of this conversation. And I think that before jumping into some of the things that are the solutions, I think it's worth mentioning that we should, we should guard ourselves from the temptation to jump back into the band-aids. And I think that there's always, mm. when you have something that's urgent like this, um, so something that's very visible, as you mentioned, there's always this tendency to, to go back into, okay, well, what are some quick fixes, right? What are some quick band-aids? What are some quick ways that we can sort of, you know, hide the problem again from sight? And that's what we have to really be on guard against. And that's part of why, you know, AJC, for instance, opposed things like the, the sanctioned campsite strategy, because we're going to be spending, you know, millions of dollars, possibly to the tune of something like $18 million a year on maintaining sanctioned campsites now, right? And again, we're back in, in that territory where these are stop gaps, these are not real fixes, they're not really gonna address the crisis around homelessness. And some of them might even be necessary in the world of post-Prop B, where folks are now at risk for their lives um, or risk facing encounters with law enforcement officers that may be violent and even lethal. Um, it's really unfortunate that we're in this place but again, to return to the positive note, I think we just have to really um, keep our eyes on, on what are real strategic changes that can, that can alter the landscape, structurally speaking. And of course, the most obvious one is housing. <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, not just housing, um, but housing coupled with wraparound services, housing coupled with support, right? It was what we call permanent supportive housing and also uh, better funding for a whole network, a whole ecosystem of service providers and folks in our community, like the Other Ones Foundation, who I believe you're gonna to talk to, who, who do wonderful work in the community, but badly need more resources so that they can scale their operations um, and reach more people. And another challenge that you run into uh, when you talk about housing is really convincing uh, property management companies to want to house people. Even if you have vouchers or you have some kind of a partnership program where you come in and you promise to pay the rent and you know you sign a deal and ECHO has a, a low barrier criteria um, deal that they get part of property management companies to sign in order to house folks. Lots and lots of property management companies don't want to take those deals, don't even really sit down to have that conversation to even know what that could look like because there's so much prejudice or concern or apprehension on the outset about even the possibility of housing people who are unhoused in our community that already the conversation is just not, it's not even possible. It's just shut down from the beginning, which is what motivated AJC to create a campaign called How to House. Um, which is really a simple campaign. And it's, 
how are we going to get out of this if we don't all decide to be part of the solution and to include um, folks experiencing homelessness in our communities again? Right. I mean, this is, um, I think, a big part of it, maybe when you mentioned what do we do? Obviously, our long-term goal is to build housing and more housing for people. Obviously, that that takes some time. And so when we think about what we could do quicker, that would be better than you know having people perhaps at designated campsites. It seems like being able to get people into existing housing units would be a quicker potential solution or, or a way we could house people. But as you mentioned, there is this barrier and I, I know that there's already been this program in place, right, that ECHO has, and the idea would be what, that you're able to provide kind of funding for those property managers to make sure that they're going to get their rent every month. But it seems like what you're saying is that's still not enough. They're, they're still not wanting to engage and there needs to be more, I don't know, public acceptance or pressure on, on these property managers to say, no, we, we want this in our, in our community, actually. That's, that's absolutely right, you know, and, and maybe a good place to start is to, you know, write a letter to your property management company and just say, look, I, you know, we have a template on the AJC website, um, howtohouseatx.com, and there's a template of a, of a sample of what a letter like that can look like. Send a letter to your property management company and say, look, you know, we, uh, I personally would welcome the idea of housing some folks experiencing homelessness in this complex. You know, I would not be opposed to it. And maybe if you could get five or six of your neighbors to also write a similar letter, um, then that might have some impact on shifting the property management company's willingness uh, to sit down and have that conversation. Now, of course, uh, it's going to take much more than that. And we're hoping that we can, as a community, do more to just raise the general awareness that this is something that we all need to be part of solving. And, you know, it's not just property management companies. It's also tenants, right? Tenants have to also overcome some of the prejudice and realize that they are themselves some, you know, right now during the pandemic and with the winter storm, we have so many tenants in this city, so, so many who are just one step, not even a step, they're one fraction of a misstep away from becoming homeless themselves. Um, so there needs to be some solidarity there and some recognition that like, this is me, right? This is me very soon if, if I mean, hopefully it's not, I'm hoping that we can, we're also fighting for tenant protections and for, rental assistance, but I think people don't realize the scale of the crisis that we're facing in, in terms of that, um, in terms of all that has happened in the past couple of years. And so, you know, I think we need solidarity. We need to be more inclusive in our communities, and that's a key part of it. Yeah. So for the How to House ATX campaign, the idea is if an individual wants to get involved when, and they are a renter or a homeowner reaching out to property managers that they have a relationship with and kind of making it clear that as a fellow resident of that area, this is something they accept and are interested in. Um, what are the other components of the campaign? I guess, obviously, if you're a property manager or someone who's in a place where you're able to do that, they can access through the website as well. The idea, I guess, is just trying to open up more of these units. Because the funding Absolutely. is available, it seems like. There is some funding available right okay. now. Um, there's funding available that could make a number of units come online very quickly if there was more willingness to sit down and have those partnership conversations. Got it. And so that's that's one component, I know, of the work you all are doing. But you're involved in a lot of other things as well. One, one thing I, I saw recently is some advocacy around ensuring that we as a community put up the funding that we really need in order to build this housing um, long-term and 
and, and make some progress here because it, it costs money and it's something that we need as a community, it seems like, to prioritize and invest in. That's absolutely right. Um, one of the things that AJC has been very much involved in in the past couple of months has been helping to build, critique, design, participate in this thing called the Summit Plan, which brought together a whole number of different players from different backgrounds, um, service providers, some folks who had uh, lived experience around homelessness, some folks who are from the nonprofit sector um, and the private sector, and some folks from city leadership, city council were there, and all these different folks in the room and lots of just volunteers, people interested in, in finding solutions were able to come together around a kind of a goal, which is uh, 3,000 in three, three unlocking 3,000 new units, new household units in three years. Um, which is incredibly ambitious. It involves the creation of a thousand new units of permanent supportive housing. And there's a number of other pieces, a massive increase in funding and support for our providers and for our services. And, you know, I think the moving pieces of the plan are still evolving, but the basic outline was made public. And I think we can share a link here with anyone who wants to take a closer look at the presentation. Um, so AJC was part of helping to create what, that's look, what that can look like. Um, and, and it's an ongoing process that we're still a part of. But plans are great, but plans need to be funded. And one of the things that we wanted to do is ride the momentum, as you mentioned, around Prop B. You know, folks, some folks in our community apparently voted for Prop B because they sincerely wanted to do something, right? It is worth noting that there was absolutely nothing, 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 nothing in the ballot language of Prop B that said a word about funding housing or funding services or funding anything for folks experiencing homelessness, right? It was purely about fines, the threat of jail time. Yeah, the world of Prop B, after Prop B passed, the world of Prop B is a world where it is actually more difficult to house folks um, for a number of reasons. First of all, because we start wasting a lot of time and money around things like temporary campsites, right? $18 million that could go to vouchers, that could go to some other support system are now going into simply maintaining designated campsites and all of that. So it's a world where we waste a lot of money and time arguing about band-aids. And most importantly, it's a world where folks experiencing homelessness have an increased likelihood of an encounter with a law enforcement officer. And every time they cycle through that system, through our jails, through you know, an arrest, and so they get something on their record, it just makes it harder and harder and harder for them to ever get housed. So um, the world of property has made it more difficult, but because there was a lot of action, a lot of attention, a lot of conversation around Prop B, um, we can definitely gauge that this is top of mind for people in the city and that this is a priority. And I want to believe that some folks sincerely meant what they said when they said that they wanted to house people. Um, and if that's the case, then I think now is a perfect moment for us all to come together, whether you voted for Prop B or not, and say, well, here's an opportunity. We have the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, we're going to have a large bucket of money committed to the city and the county. And we can use this money to really structurally transform the services we provide. And of course, this is not just going to homeless folks or to folks experiencing homelessness. This is going to job creation, right? When you're talking about scaling up uh, services, when you're talking about um, funding local nonprofits and grassroots efforts, funding construction. You're, you're talking about lots of work opportunities and a, a large financial payback to the community from this kind of investment. So there's a lot of return on this investment um, to the city at large, but it is a chance for us to structurally transform what we have on the table right now for folks experiencing homelessness. 
Yeah. And this is federal dollars that are coming from kind of COVID relief efforts. And I'm not sure how much the city is going to get, but I was in some meeting with Travis County the other day where they said they're expected to get $250 million total. So they're getting a lot of money um, that's coming through. And the idea is, is trying to direct um, a big chunk of that to homelessness services, right? That's exactly right. So we, we came out with this bold ask, um, which was AJC, Homes Not Handcuffs, a number of coalition groups and partners, and really telling Travis County, telling the city to each commit $100 million. And of course, we also have a, a matching ask for the private sector in, in Austin. And we would like to see the private sector raise $100 million also so that we could you know, roughly fund the plan, which is approximately $300 million to um, execute this bold goal and vision. And, and, and it's, it's important to note that we're talking about 3,000 households. It's not 3,000 people, it's 3,000 households, and it's likely going to be housing for something closer to 4,500 or even 7,000 people in the long run. And this is 20 years worth of value that we're getting out of a lot of this new housing construction that we're going to be doing. So we're not just it's not just some, you know, I've seen some people do the math where they're like, well, you know, you take 300 million and you divide it by 3000 people. That's a lot of money per person, but that's not what we're doing at all, right? We're funding services. We're, we're helping our, all of our local service providers scale up their teams. It's a whole massive structural change. We need this because folks experiencing homelessness, folks who are unhoused right now, they have a very difficult time accessing the resources and opportunities that other folks in the community have. So it's not likely that if you just handed them a check, they would be able to go tomorrow to a property management company and sign a lease. That's not going to happen because of the absence of credit, um, possible criminal records or other um, background issues, um, a whole number of issues, and just the absence of rental history if they've been chronically homeless for a while. This is much bigger than just saying we're going to divvy up the pie and give everyone a chunk of money. This is saying we're going to actually build a system where they have a place to go. Right. And I suppose, you know, in a place like Austin, obviously buying land that is owned by the city or nonprofit organizations into perpetuity matters a lot. <laughs> I mean, land is Very so expensive well. here and to be able to take something out to say this is a public resources, um, long lasting investment. Yeah. Land acquisition and anything like this that we can develop now and acquire now is going to be so crucial and the way things are changing in this city, it's just less and less likely that we'll be able to do something like this five, 10 years down the road. It's not, not likely. So right. it just gets more expensive. <laughs> yep. Every day. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you know the answer to this or not, but do you have any idea as to when city council and commissioner's court might make these decisions about rescue plan funding? Like, will it be part of their normal budget process or could it be coming up in the next few weeks? I don't know if you know the answer or not, but. It's not part of the normal budget process. There's a distinct process for the American Rescue Plan uh, Act money. And that process is already ongoing at City, at city Hall. Um, city Council has already been looking at staff proposals and debating the numbers. And initially it was supposed to be June 3rd, the date, but there has been some, the date for the vote on, on the designation of the money. Um, so that's coming up uh, very soon. There has been some conversation about postponing it and getting a little more time to look over things. Um, but it's very much, that conversation is very much on the way at city, at city Hall. On the county side, 
There's been, um, the, the county has a number of its own priorities and different projects that the county is discussing. The county is talking about how it wants to fund the creation of a new woman's jail and some of those other things. Um, so there's, this is very much an opportunity to reach out to the county and let all of the county commissioners know, let each and every one of them know that, that this is a priority, right? That the funding housing, funding the creation of housing for homeless people is so much more important than the creation of a new jail for women. You know, <laughs> um, Let's get our priorities aligned. And I think that now is a really important time for folks to deliver that message to the county. I think there's a, a lot of uh, misconception um, that, that gets passed around in the county a lot where folks say, the county doesn't fund housing. The county doesn't do housing. Housing is the city's responsibility. The county does, you know, services and jobs, but that's really not true. There's nothing that 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 stops the county from investing in housing. So the county absolutely can and should and must be part of this. And we need to dispel the idea that the county can't um, touch or be involved in housing. <laughs> there are many action items there for folks in the community want to get engaged in this issue. I mean, one simple one is you can go over to the Austin Justice Coalition website and on the front page, you'll find a link to a uh, petition um, and you can sign that petition. So far, the petition has 2,099 signatures. Um, I would love to see this petition make 3,000 signatures um, before council and county commissioners really start uh, to vote on this item. And I think we can do it. The moment you sign the petition, it automatically sends an email to every member of city council and every member of the county commissioner's court, as well as uh, uh, the city manager's office. And it lets them know that this is a priority. So the more uh, emails we can send, the better. And then you can also uh, pick up the phone and call your county, find out who your county commissioner is and call them. Call your city council member and say, this is a priority. This is something that I would like to see um, get done. And yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, in, in thinking bigger picture or beyond these immediate items, you know, we're talking about um, funding from the city and the county and this how to house ATX campaign. But, you know, obviously, when we talk about something like housing and homelessness, these are like structural problems. And and I know that AJC is really engaged in community organizing and calling out some of these things. You know, they're very much wrapped up in a and a lot of our other issues and equity issues and uh, gentrification, like you mentioned, is there anything else, you know, that you have your eyes out on or looking at when we're thinking about homelessness, we've got these immediate programs we're working on, but as a community, where else can we be setting our eyes to looking at this? Cause it does seem like a problem that is destined to just get, get worse. Like our, our housing issues, we don't provide a lot of affordable housing opportunities, even no, for people who I think wouldn't consider themselves on the verge of being homeless, but could be closer than, than any of us realize. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you could have a decent paying job and not be able to afford housing in Austin. That's we're very rapidly approaching that world. I think so many of us, we need to, this idea that like, we need to challenge this idea that that new housing is bad, right? Um, the new housing is something to be opposed at every turn. You know, I sit on the city's planning commission, and, and you know, we, you know, you hear neighborhood groups come forward against density as though density were some kind of a cancer. But what density is is places for people to stay, places for people to live. And I think we need to move into this new world where we reframe the conversation around the housing. 
as something that's necessary and important and positive and that we can find a way to do it equitably. Um, and then we should encourage the most affordable possible developments. You know, if we have an opportunity to get income restricted units, then we should take that opportunity. You know, we really need to reframe these broader conversations about what kind of a city Austin wants to be. You know, I mean, as you mentioned, we can't have neighborhood groups come out in opposition to every new, we're never going to fund, we're never going to build the housing that we're funding through the summit plan if we don't have a real commitment from everyone to accept housing in their community, some new housing in their community. Um, there's no reason why we shouldn't. Um, you know, there's no reason why a, a, a new small little development down the block from where I live, where folks are now living and having a place to live is this terrible thing, right? <laughs> um, there's just no reason why it needs to be this, this cancer that we fight against. New neighbors are part of our community and, and, and that's just life. <laughs> so I think, that, I think that that's one of the main messages that I would like to convey is what kind of a city do we want to be? Do we want to be a city that's only exclusively for the wealthiest those among us who have already who already have their little piece of the pie and that's all we are. We're just going to fight everyone protecting their little piece of the pie, their little street, their little neighborhood. Or are we capable of thinking bigger picture and asking ourselves, well, what kind of city are we together as Austin? And that's our show for today. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansberry, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. One quick friendly request on this. If you like our show and find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really does help us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. And a final thank you to the Tiara Girls, the amazing local band whose music you hear at the start and end of this podcast. You can listen to their music on Spotify or follow them on Instagram at Tiara Girl Band with two R's. Uh, that's at Tiara Girl Band. All right, that's our show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>